Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 10 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. Now my name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. And before we get into our items for today's episode Stephen, I'd like to continue this tour of Apocryphal Australia headquarters. And last episode I introduced people to our museum gallery up there on the first floor. Today I thought I'd continue the tour of that museum gallery more or less by pointing out a few of the more interesting items we have. Just a little short journey today. One of my favourites is Audrey Milligan's series of large artworks where she anticipated the recent boom in adult colouring books, where all her artworks are merely black outlines. She favoured landscapes, but she did undertake several portraits of friends and family, but staunchly refused to colour them in, saying that she didn't want to stifle the imaginations of onlookers in in the sense of colours. They make for pretty monochromatic viewing, but if you squint just right, they're harder to view. Now, we've got three of them. They are some of my favourites, and they're restful in a sort of black and white way. So I'll take people through the gallery in future episodes and let them join us in appreciation of some of the wonders that we've accumulated. Now, Stephen, will we go straight into our items for today? Yeah, we can do. I did just want to point out that having had a, a reacquainted myself with the, uh, the the wonders that that exist in in our headquarters, we really need to up our insurance. We really do need to make it part of our regular day here at the Apocryphal Australia headquarters, to get up and appreciate some of the stuff we have. Now, Stephen, let's get into Apocryphal Australia business by opening with your first piece for today. Yes, that's what we're really here for, isn't it? Today I want to to start off talking about Sir Barry McKeon. Barry, as he was then, McKeon, was born Larry Olivier in 1943. So it wasn't as he was then. That was a stupid thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way with history sometimes. <laughs> it is true. Anyway, he was born in 1953. Uh, sorry. He hailed from the rural city of Bendigo, but he moved with his family to Carlton in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Here, young Larry Olivier attended Monash University and got involved in the drama club in his first year. He was ridiculed for having the same name as a famous actor, and so he changed his name to... Barry McKeon, purely as his stage name. When he completed his university course in geology, he realised he missed the stage and performing, and so he sought acting jobs whenever he could. He played Bazza in Quirk's The Life of Riley, and he began to be offered small parts in various productions. He won the role of Bluey Truscott in Grantham's Truscott's Lament, and followed it up with a stunning performance as Jerker Jenkins in Adair's Three Men and a Goat. Tiring of the ochre persona he seemed to be attracting, McKeon decided to travel to England to absorb the culture and to divest himself of his broad Aussie accent. He adopted a posh English accent in an attempt to fit in, but he found himself knocked back for every role he applied for, until at an audition for the role of Macbeth, he forgot his lines and broke character. 
The audition was recorded for posterity, and, and it went something like this. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And I mean, we all cark it in the end, copper. I mean, life, your actual life, that's like some yobbo, some poor bugger, like up on the stage or something, and he's up there for a bit, and boom, nothing. Like some story told by some drongo, full of all sorts of stuff, but like, it don't mean nothing. The director saw a new way of interpreting the bard, and suddenly Barry McKeon was the most sought-after actor in England. His Hamlet, under the direction of Sir James Leith, was a revelation. To be or not to be, buggered if I know. His Mark Anthony, in Roburn's production of Julius Caesar, was stunning. Friends, Romans, country, you are not going to friggin' believe this. And in an effort to extend his range, a change of pace with his Portia from Lawson's Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, like a bucket of prawns in the sun. McCann went on to star in productions of plays by all the top playwrights of the time. However, he soon tired of what came to regard as his gimmick of bringing an Australian feel, no matter how subtle, to the roles he played. He returned to Australia, where he was contracted to play Rue in Lawler's Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. Oddly, McCann chose to play the burly cane cutter with a confected Oxford accent, a move which proved that lightning does not strike twice in the same place. Wow. Well, that is one of the, the greatest of the great unknown Australians bio that we've done so far, I'd say. But there's so much there to think about. So, so he was part of that Australian diaspora, like Clive James and Jermaine Greer. He left here and went over to the cultural capital to try to make a name for himself. Indeed, and in many ways, I think, I think he was probably the most talented of that group, but yet the most unheralded. Certainly sounds like it. Now, couldn't we use a Barry McKeon today? Could we indeed. Wonderful man. Michael, we've covered some incredibly interesting individuals during the two seasons of Apocryphal Australia, um, and you've got yet another one. Certainly do, Stephen. This is the sad, tragic and even sobering story of Manfred Chilbaster. Let me take you back. In the late 1930s and into the 1940s, mysterious graffito began appearing throughout the streets of Sydney. On walls, fences, bridges and lampposts, two solitary words would appear in flowing distinctive writing. For sale. None of the properties or objects that the cryptic words were written on were for sale, and soon the origin and purpose of the phrase was a subject of gossip throughout the inner suburbs of the city. The phrase was always written carefully, even painstakingly. The capital F and S were elegant and entirely individual, while a swooping freehand loop underlined the phrase in a manner that was both graceful and unique. No one stepped forward to claim responsibility for the phrase that 
continue to appear on pillar boxes, park benches and, in one notable instance, the helmet of a sleeping policeman. The streets of Sydney were being embellished by the hand of a gifted calligrapher who only worked at night and was never seen. Newspaper editors, sensing the sort of human interest story that would sell lots of papers, sent reporters out to try to track down the for sale man, as the mysterious writer was dubbed, with, it must be admitted, a singular lack of imagination. Why not the for sale felon? with its catchy alliteration, or along the same lines, maybe the for-sale stylist. Opportunities lost their newspaper editors. Anyway, the reporters slunk around the midnight streets for weeks, unsuccessfully, occasionally exclaiming jubilantly at the sight of a furtive figure lurking around a municipal statue, only to discover it was a reporter from a rival paper. Three fistfights were rumoured to have broken out, but interestingly, none of them made the morning headlines. The for-sale man became a legend and a public favourite. Crowds gathered to admire each new for-sale and people often discussed the relative merits of each appearance. The for-sale man was a champion of the people, it was declared, for many accepted that his statement of for-sale on factories and exclusive shops was a commentary on class and unfairness, a way of ironically pointing out the unequal distribution of wealth. Others just liked the handwriting. A new peak of excitement came when For Sale appeared on the sides of Sydney ferries and for a while it was rumoured that the For Sale man was part fish, perhaps flathead, perhaps ludric, but his speculation was regarded as far-fetched. In 1948, a middle-aged man stepped forward and declared that he was the For Sale man. In an exclusive interview with the now-defunct Weekly Clarion, Arthur Skibby revealed that he'd daubed the phrase around the streets of Sydney in an attempt to break into show business, and that he was available for leading roles in film or on stage. His confession was discounted the next day when his wife laughed and told the Monthly Stentor, a news magazine that folded after two issues and went bust immediately after, that Arthur Skibby was afraid of the dark and never set foot outside his home after sundown. Besides, she said, his handwriting looked like something a first-grade schoolboy would be ashamed of. Arthur Skibby appeared once as a chorus member in the song and dance pageant Whoops, Who's Got the Artichoke? That was a two-night hit at the Paddington Services Hall, summer of 1951. The last recorded instance of the much-loved For Sale writing appeared in 1949. In 1974, an almost illiterate diary was found among the effects of the late Manfred Chilbaster that had been kept undisturbed in a trunk that had passed to his daughter Lola after Manfred died in 1950. It was revealed that he was the for-sale man and that he thought he was writing for Sally as a memorial to his fiancée who died before they could marry. Manfred Chilbaster had sworn to make his Sally eternal and in some ways she is, with the ghostly remains of the graceful for-sale script to be seen in back streets and alleyways across inner Sydney. What a lovely, heart-rending story. Uh, The word poignant was made for that story. Now, Stephen, even though I'm heavily affected by that last piece, I'll hand over to you for your second. 
Thank you, Michael. Yeah, this is um, this is travelling back in time a little bit. We have been spending some time in the contemporary moments, but this is back in 1787. Whoa. And it's all to do with Kenneth Marmalade. In 1787, the first fleet arrived in Australia. It's a very well-known topic that has attracted the attention of scholars and history buffs for decades. The first fleet is well documented. The fourth fleet, not so much. It's generally thought that James Wallace introduced bees into Australia when he transported seven hives aboard the Isabella in 1822. What has been forgotten in the mists of time is that a prisoner named Kenneth Marmalade actually introduced bees aboard the fourth fleet ship, Trixie, in 1813. Marmalade was not actually convicted of any crime, but it was agreed by the courts, magistrates and transportation officials of the time that he was an annoying little blighter who simply got on everyone's nerves. His crime? Bee puns. He just could not help himself. Marmalade was just really into bees. He said things like, Be the first to try honey, and it swarm today, isn't it? When told he would be in trouble with the authorities if he kept annoying people, he replied, That remains to be seen. When told he would be sent to prison, he told the arresting officer, I've had enough of your threats. <laughs> Kenneth Marmalade was that kind of person. He was sentenced to transportation to Australia. He was assigned to the ship Trixie and told he would be in charge of the successful introduction of bees in the colony. He planned initially to just take one hive full of honey. He realised that honeybees were able to survive long winters in England, so they should survive the sea voyage. However, realising he would be in trouble if the hive did not survive, he organised another hive to take with him. He called this hive Plan B, which saw another six years added to his sentence. (laughs) Upon arrival in Sydney Cove, Marmalade set up his apiary in a rudimentary orchard in order to increase the productivity of the fruit trees that had been established. At first, all went well. The bees thrived. People left Marmalade alone once they'd heard his greeting of how would you be more than 20 times and the crops benefited from the increase in pollination. However, disaster struck in the month of October. Marmalade had fenced off the apiary area of the orchard in order to protect the hives from clumsy cattle who were occasionally allowed to graze in the area. The fence, a fairly rough affair made from woven thin branches, featured a small gate and tragically Marmalade left the gate open and the bees absconded. He located the swarm, which had decided to spend the night attached to a rope in the rafters of a local confectioner. Marmalade set up a swarm trap using a small box into which he'd placed some old honeycomb. He set the trap up on a ladder under the hanging swarm and deftly cut the rope, allowing the swarm to fall into the box. As they fell, the swarm knocked a small piece of hardened honeycomb into a vat of chocolate and this was possibly Kenneth Marmalade's greatest contribution to Australian society, and he did not even know he'd made that contribution. In the morning, Eric Hoadley, confectioner, entered his workplace, inspected the vat of chocolate, and found some foreign material in it. He took the lump from the vat and broke it open. The honeycomb within was so hard that it shattered violently, and thus was invented Hoadley's violent crumble bar. Some years later, Eric Hoadley's son wrapped the bar in an appealing purple wrapper and rechristened it the Violet Crumble. It was, for a time, Australia's favourite chocolate bar. Kenneth Marmalade. 
it would have to be one of Australia's greatest unsung <laughs> heroes. Stephen, as usual, so much to take on board there. And once again, as usual, I'm going to zero in on a tiny, tiny part. There was a very important phrase you used early in that piece, and that was the mists of time. And isn't it important how we can use the mists of time to our advantage? They are an opportunity for apocryphal Australia research. Every mist of time is a moment that we can use. True, but I like to think that we turn on the air conditioner of truth to part the mists of time. To dispel the mists. And to reveal all. Now, Michael, we haven't had a geographical feature for a while, I don't think, for two episodes or so, so um, you're going to take us back into the wide world. I'm going to explore, I'm going to bring to our listeners out there the wonders and delights of the tiny desert. Victoria. The tiny desert is in the far northwest of Victoria, near the big desert, the little desert, and the itsy bitsy desert. Extinct. It's about the size of a suburban front yard, and it overlooks the infinitesimal desert, as does everyone else. The tiny desert has been the scene of a number of extraordinary events over many, many years. In the middle 1950s, for example, the tiny desert was the site of a series of major rocket launches, part of an Australo-Caledonian project. The Tartan Warrior blew up on the launch pad, the Celestial Haggis exploded after a few seconds flight, while the Flying Sporran reached the unheard-of height of 5 feet 3 inches before falling to pieces. Several Russian spies were captured nearby, covered in sand and bull ants, and keeping to their cover story by asking which way to Alice Springs, which fooled nobody. The Australo-Caledonian rocketry project was abandoned when all these scientists involved decided to go for a drink instead and never returned. The tiny desert was also the location for the shortest ever desert rally. In 1966, when five specially modified cars jostled for position and then were declared joint winners as soon as the flag dropped. A protest was entered by dynamite Don Dixon against the equal winner, Lightning Larry Lawrence, claiming that Lawrence had pulled a face at him, but the protest was dismissed and the placings remained as they were. As an aside, a considerable loss was sustained by the major merchandise vendor for the rally, Susie Standish, when two of her tiny desert rally baseball caps were seized by a goanna that scuttled off and was never seen again. Speaking of scuttling, a major economic boost to the region was scuttled in 1971 when the Acme Sand Company, motto, We Understand Sand, gave up on its plans to establish a sizeable sand mining concern in the tiny desert when it was found that the trucks wouldn't fit, let alone the excavators, the massive chain digger and the industrial conveyor belt. Two members of the Acme Sand Company board were sacked after this debacle, but they left claiming they never liked sand anyway. They both ended up sailing around the world solo, but in opposite directions. And in an incredible coincidence, they passed each other within hailing distance in the middle of the Indian Ocean. But since it was at night and they were both asleep, they didn't realise until they were told much later. A missed opportunity, I guess. The tiny desert was once visited by a camel. 
an event that surely cements its credentials as a real proper desert. The camel appeared in 1984, peered around for a while, and then left. To some, this might seem like a trivial event, but everything's relative, isn't it? The tiny desert was the site of a top-secret US monitoring base until the Felmanchoff affair of 1960. And the less said about that, the better, as, as they could be listening. A passerby once suggested that the tiny desert would be a good site for a radioactive waste dump, until another passerby reacted with outrage and threatened to picket any such installation if she could find it. The tiny desert is the home of the sand groper, a lively, sleek lizard that spends most of its time diving and breaching through the sand in the manner of a land-living dolphin. The sand button, a button-sized succulent that looks like a button and can survive for years without moisture as long as no one comments on its lack of prospects as a member of the judiciary. And also the sand beetle, which is renowned for both its intensely painful bite and its excoriating wit. Critics are divided on which is the more devastating. The tiny desert is also an overwintering site for the sole remaining flock of sand geese, and the sand sniper visits now and then in a sort of time-sharing arrangement with the lesser sandwing that both are happy with and intend on maintaining as long as the legalities stand up to scrutiny. The tiny desert. Remarkable, intriguing, small. Mm. Is it known who actually discovered the tiny desert and why? I think it was always there. Stephen, your third piece is one of those with people, places, things, events. What can we call it? A phenomenon? Yeah, we could call it that. It's got everything. And it, it, it's all to do with, it started off with an aircraft called the Weaver, U-I-V-E-R, which I, th- I believe is Dutch for, for dove. Yeah. And I guess they named it that to represent an era of peaceful aviation. Can I just say that that's the first time we've included a little bit of Dutch in our Apocryphal Australia episodes? Well, let's hope we got it right. Anyway, it's October 23rd, 1934, and all eyes and ears in Albury are straining to hear the engines of the Weaver, a participant in the McRobertson London to Melbourne air race. Ah. I should point out that all of the eyes weren't straining to hear the aircraft. That, would, that wouldn't make sense. The eyes were trying to see the, the Weaver. Fair point. And okay, it might not have been all of the eyes, but it was a lot of them. The Weaver was a DC-2 aircraft from the Netherlands and it was participating in one of the most gruelling air races in existence. The aircraft was well placed in the race when disaster nearly struck. The Weaver flew straight into a violent storm over the rural city of Albury. Frantic radio calls from the aircraft indicated that it needed to land immediately but was unable to see a suitable landing field. The crew were advised to aim for Albury, but they could not see the town. Quick thinking from officials in Melbourne led to the townspeople spelling out the town name Albury in Morse code by switching lights on and off. They then used many cars to illuminate the town's showgrounds as a suitable landing field, and the weaver made a safe landing. Everyone was happy, and Albury was on the map. Tourism boomed. And then, two months later, it all happened again. The Weaver 2, sister plane of the first Weaver, and participating in the same race, but obviously not doing quite as well, 
flew into another storm over the city of Albury. The well-practised inhabitants of Albury once again jumped into action and spelt out the name of the city in Morse code, but this time the pilot got confused. Sick of hearing Albury residents go on and on about their heroic city, the council of, neighbouring, of the neighbouring city, Pithy, hatched plans to compete for the tourist dollars that flowed to Albury. Hearing the struggling aircraft circling above, they organised the Pithy populace to spell out their own message. In Morse code, they spelled out, No, we are Albury, in an effort to attract the aircraft. Incensed, the Albury mayor and senior police officers phoned the mayor of Pithy and demanded they stop impersonating Albury. The Pithy officials reluctantly agreed. They got their citizens to spell out, Albury is a dump anyway, instead. And then they added, come to Pithy. And they lit up the town's showground to entice the stricken aircraft. The mayor of Pithy, Ron Wittishins, who used to be in advertising, suggested a few more messages and so the townspeople were giving, given sheets to signal Morse code messages saying things like free beer in Pithy and Pithy or you can eat for two shillings at the Pithy pub. Tonight is Palmanite. The confused pilot decided to land at the Pithy showgrounds. Sadly, Alf Welk had ploughed the showgrounds field to plant spuds just the week before and the Weaver 2 ripped out its undercarriage, slewed to a halt and took out the poultry pavilion. The crew survived, but two light Sussex bantams died in the crash. Yet another page in our country's proud aviation history. I'm referring to the original Weaver story, of course. The pithy story was pretty much glossed over as a minor incident and never referred to again. Well, forget Sydney-Melbourne rivalry. This is Albury-Pithy rivalry, one for the books. And it still goes on today. Now, Michael, we're going to, you're going to wrap up your ones with this one. Sounds very exciting indeed. Harriet Go Longley. It is exciting. It's, it's full of adrenaline, high thrills, daredevil stuff. And in fact, Harriet Go Longley, at my piece here, I've got what we call a second reference, a, a little tagline to it. I've said, Harriet Go Longley, speed queen, daredevil, stunt woman. So that's a little wow. teaser for you. So. Jumping into it, Harriet Golongly was born in Innisfail, Queensland, in 1909. Her parents were Gilligan Golongly, a mineral interrogator, and Hortense Golongly, nee Oswald, the renowned mesmerist and the heroine of the Mount Traffin avalanche disaster. From an early age, Harriet Golongly showed her utter lack of fear and her need for thrills. Even before she could walk, she would crawl around a room at breakneck pace until exhausted, and she'd also hurl herself off the single step of the family home, squealing with delight as she tumbled over and over. When she began walking, she was giddy with glee at the sudden increase in speed, even if it were rather wobbly. As a child, she always sought out situations that would bring her an adrenaline rush. Her favourite piece of playground equipment was, naturally, the swing, and her cry of, higher, higher, was constant. Her father developed a severe back injury trying to keep up with her demands, and he hired a local mechanic, Stan Arbogast, to stand in for him at the swing. It became a near full-time job. It was when Harriet was in her late teens that she began to gain a reputation as a speed queen. Stan Arbogast, her swing pusher, introduced her to his cousin George Toaster, who had entered the world of dirt track speedway racing that was flourishing at the time. 
Once Harriet had shown her innate talent in practice, George Toaster suggested the clever disguise of wearing a helmet, and Harriet entered competition racing. By the end of 1927, she was besting the best that Queensland had to offer. So Harriet and George went on the road. With Harriet driving, their travel was extremely rapid, and within months, she'd won races at Newcastle, New South Wales, Warrnambool, Victoria, Geelong, Victoria, North Adelaide, South Australia, and Bunbury, West Australia. But... As came to be a pattern with Harriet, no sooner had she achieved success in a speed-related field that she became bored with it and looked for further challenges. So she took up motorcycle racing, working her way back across the continent and winning races at some of the tracks she'd previously triumphed in the speedcars. After conquering racing, Harriet soon took her motorcycling skills in a different direction, with daredevil feats like barrel jumping, and eventually joining the Sternshaw family circus and working up to the famous, or infamous, Wall of Death. The popular Wall of Death featured a large wooden cylinder about 10 metres in diameter, made totally of wooden planks. The daredevil motorcyclists would start on the floor of the cylinder and go faster and faster, rising up along the vertical wall, held in place by a combination of centrifugal force and friction. If that wasn't impressive and dangerous enough, Harriet would often perform this stunt blindfolded, and later blindfolded while fire-eating. Harriet's extraordinary skills brought her to the attention of the film industry in the 1930s, and she was recruited to perform hair-raising stunts, like dangling from high buildings, jumping from high railway bridges just before the arrival of a train, and leaping from burning buildings. All of these feats were immensely popular in the 1930s, but sadly, none of these early films she appeared in have survived. Harriet Golongly continued appearing in films and as part of touring circuses well into her 60s. Her last known appearance was the television series Spy Force in 1971 when she fell out of a coconut tree and landed, face away from camera, at the feet of Jack Thompson. Harriet Golongly died unexpectedly when she slipped on a bar of soap while getting out of her bath in 1972. What a loss to the world of, well, the world, I suppose. What I want to know is, where's the biopic starring Nicole Kidman? Let's just say it's in development, and that's meant to stop you from taking up what was an excellent idea, Stephen, and we'll get cracking on it. Stephen, we're once again bringing this episode to a conclusion, but before we do, we can't wind up without a dip into the mailbag. Yes, always interesting to find out what, what's interesting our, our listeners at any stage. First up, first dip into the mailbag, Peter Sensor writes in to let us know he's aware of someone that we should research. Mm. Peter states that the local detective of his police station, Oliver Staunch, is a very, very clever detective. He can solve any case that comes his way, but Oliver Staunch is not an alcoholic. He lives happily with his wife and children. He does not suffer from bouts of depression or anxiety. He gets along well with his colleagues and is generally a well-rounded individual with no quirks or bad habits. And frankly, Peter, I find all of that a bit hard to believe. Mm. Needless to say, there will be no forthcoming book, miniseries or major feature film about this fellow. No, he just hasn't got it. The next one, Alice Snack of Chummy in New South Wales writes in to let us know that all of the native birds in Chummy are left-handed. 
That is extraordinary <laughs> and probably yeah, apocryphal. Yeah, well, you might uh, pay to research that one a little bit more. And finally, Jeremy Blather of Quint in rural Victoria says that he thinks that the economy of Australia has been in decline since the introduction of decimal currency in 1966. He personally has refused to join in the fake economy, as he terms it, and he manages quite well on a few old pre-decimal notes and coins he's managed to keep. And he also asked people to send him any old Christmas pudding coins that they might have. Uh, I don't really know how Jeremy manages to pay for goods and services without losing his meagre store of pre-decimal notes and coins, but I guess he has some sort of system. So he's a fan of the pounds and the shillings and the pence. Yes. A traditionalist. Steve, I have one email from Hetty Insula from Marble Bathroom, New South Wales, who writes, I have an idea. What if a time is nominated, say noon on a particular day, Eastern Standard Time, where every Australian could rush outside and shout cooey at the top of our voices just to see if it could be heard in New Zealand? Well, it's an interesting idea, Hetty, but I can't quite see how it fits into our role here at Apocryphal Australia. But don't let us stop you from coming up with schemes like this. You're just the sort of wild, untrammeled thinker that this country needs. Keep it up. And that's all we've got time for. Stephen, do you realise that this is the final episode of our second season of Apocryphal Australia? I know. Where does the time go? We're drawing the curtain on this season because we need to now go out and put together season three. Yes, and um, I think we've got a few a few changes in mind for season three, so it might might be even more interesting and oh, fascinating. Don't say too much. No, 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 uh, not saying too much, but... And we've got follow-ups too. We've got things that have come up, emails, we've got letters, we've got packages coming in. But also, in the episodes that we ran out this season, there were things that we really need to pursue more. Yes, every piece that we research throws up more research. Yeah, there's no, there's no end to our investigations. But there is an end to this episode and this season. But before we do, Stephen, you'd like to give everybody a reminder. Yes, even though it's the last episode of the season, that's not going to stop you from going back and listening to all the previous episodes from Season 1 and the previous episodes in Season 2. And also, it doesn't stop you from liking us, following us and telling all your friends about us. Spread the word. Do subscribe, do like. Social media is there and we have a presence out there. But our presence is going to fade away for a short time until Season 3. And until then, my name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. Bye, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.